we get in our own ways so much. And this work can break those filters down in a way that brings out the real you. Welcome to A Congruent Life, where we share inspirational stories of authenticity and happiness. A Congruent Life is an interview project sharing the stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary things, discovering their passions, and living authentic, amazing lives. Here's your host, Andy Gray. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 55 of A Congruent Life. My name is Andy Gray, and thanks for joining us for some conversations with some pretty inspiring people. A Congruent Life is all about authenticity. In particular, we share stories of reinvention, that is, stories of people who have the wherewithal to reevaluate what they're doing with their lives and then go forward in a way that's more congruent for them. Today's guest is Gary Hirsch, who is an artist and a co-founder of On Your Feet, which improves organizational dynamics and teaches business skills through the principles of improv. Even cooler, Gary is the driving force behind BotJoy, which spreads joy and courage throughout the world with an army of hand-painted robots. Gary's an inspiring and thoughtful guy and has some great stories and insights to share about engagement, starting small, getting out of the way in order to allow your creation to flourish, and letting go. Here's our conversation. I'm talking today to Gary Hirsch, who is an artist and illustrator and a co-founder of an organization called On Your Feet. Gary, welcome to A Congruent Life. Thanks. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm really glad to have you join us. You're doing some interesting stuff, and I thought that your path in life would be kind of an interesting meld with what we're trying to do here at A Congruent Life, and so I appreciate you taking the time to chat today. Sure. Pleasure. Happy to be here. Let's start maybe just can you give our audience kind of a quick overview of who you are and then we can dive into some more detailed stories. Oh, it's that question, the who you are question. Yeah, who are you? What do you do? It's funny because we do an exercise. I, do, I run a company. Well, this is a good, good segue. I run a company, as you said, called On Your Feet. And um, it, we use improv theater in that, in that portion of my life with businesses. So I'm a consultant, I suppose, is one, one, uh, one thing that you would paint on my door if I had a door that you could paint on. And in that company, in when we use improv with businesses, we do run an exercise, and it's called the one-minute autobiography, where we put people into pairs, like when they get into the room for the first time with each other. Sometimes they're strangers, and sometimes they, they, they know each other well. And we'll say, great, so pair up for a minute and tell the person next to you your, your life in one minute. And we don't give them any other constraints. We won't tell them to you know, do it sequentially. We just say, go, go for it. So that's what you've just done for me, except I probably have less than a minute, and I've already blown probably about a minute to explain so, but I do run a company called On Your Feet, as you said. And so for the last 16 years, I have uh, used improv, explored really a big experiment. I've been, I was an improv performer. I still am. I've been doing that for about 22 years. And I've been fascinated with how improvisers get on stage with no plan or script, or sometimes with no talent, uh, but they make things up on the spot. And I deeply, deeply believe that the behaviors they use with each other are, have utility off the stage. And uh, we work with businesses, large and small. There's 16 of us now. We've been experimenting with this idea that improv can help uh, organizations and individuals with how they create and how they relate, how they communicate. Uh, so I play with that, and I've been doing that. And then I'm also an artist and 
Illustrator, and I've been doing that as well ever since I was sort of knee high. Uh, and I do that in lots of different ways. And as of late, really for the last uh, I guess five years, I've been playing with a whole different way of working where I've been using these little robots. Actually, they've gotten really big these days too, as a way of exploring how to make art. You know, I guess in a way that allows me to make art that I start but I don't really finish. I sort of Sort of let go, I put it out into the world, and I kind of let my audiences and people that just stumble upon the streets take them and do things with it. Uh, sort of art for art that will help people, art that I can let go of and see how other people can finish them. And it kind of is a combination of really the improv work, because improv is about co creating with your audience. And all of this is just one big sort of experiment. That's kind of how I've been playing with my life, I suppose. Uh, that was definitely more than a minute, Andy, so I would have failed the game. There's no time frame. A minute and more than a minute is is just great. I gave it to myself. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Well, I think this collision between the arts and business, if you will, is a is a really interesting one. And let's let's maybe talk about that a little bit. How did you come up with this idea, or how did you start having this insight that the principles behind acting and improv could be applicable in a concrete way in the business world? Well, actually, funny enough, um, it was sort of a it was a bit of a mistake, a bit of a piece of serendipity, really. Um, I was asked uh, really by by mistake to experiment with it. Um, at the time, I was just I was selling my T-shirts, hand-painted T-shirts, so my art led into this whole experiment on the streets of Portland, Oregon. Uh, someone was interested in buying one. Uh, the person who was interested in buying one happened to be a, a advertising consultant who was doing a piece of creativity work with an ad agency, and they had a hunch that this very dysfunctional ad agency executives leadership team needed some work with their collaboration. And they, they go, what else do you do besides doing um, T-shirt painting? And I said, oh, I do improv. And they go, improv? Wow, how does that work? And the answer to this question, how does that work, it was the key that unlocked this, the last 16 years of my life because I happened to say, well, anybody can do it. And that is a truth. Anybody can do improv, this sort of thing that looks sort of mythological and, and sort of like, oh, it's only those, those talented improv actors. The truth is, is that there's a number of principles. They are structures that people can do, on, that they do do on stage that other people can learn. And I said that and I started to explain it. And this other person said, well, can you do that with a bunch of ad executives in uh, Tempe, Arizona in three weeks and I'll pay you for it? And I said, of course, not really knowing what the hell I was talking about. But the improv ethic is say yes and worry about it later. So that's what I did. Love. Uh, that's how I got started. And from there, um, it's really snowballed into, like I said, a 16-person consultancy with uh, base in Portland, Oregon, and folks in Europe and New York and Minneapolis. So it's been quite a trajectory. So what would you say are some of those principles that make this overlap between improv and business concrete? You know, most of the business world wants real results, right? It's like, okay, you know, we're going to engage you for a specific reason. Why do you think that this is so effective to corporate boardrooms and to different kinds of organizational teams? Sure. Um, Well, let's see. I guess maybe I'll I'll start from the stage because that's where I always start. And, And no matter what a client comes to us with, will always go back to the stage. So if, a, if a, a client comes to me and says, for example, uh, we have a group of people that um, have to learn how to engage with other clients, so they have to be more engaging when they present. So that might be a presentation skills brief. Or 
um, we're about to merge with another uh, company and we have to learn how to work better together. So that might be a collaboration breeze. Those are pretty solid and real business objectives. So you might be asking, well, what do improv theater folks have to say about that? Well, one thing might be a really simple sort of question. Like I say, we always ask, well, what happens on stage? And that's a question we'll always ask. And if you think about it, improvisers are simply a team of people. And they're a team of people that have to make something together. And in their instance, what they have to make is a story. Um, that's their product, basically. And they have to make a story, but they have to do it without a plan, without a way of sort of um, prototyping anything. And they have to do it in front of their audience. So in some ways, they're kind of a, a team that has to do all of this in front of their client without the benefit of iteration or the benefit of drafts or the benefit of editing. So they have to have skills and what we call them practices, really, ways of behaving that are um, actually really quite uh, a useful, beneficial ways of being with each other that um, other people outside of the improv stage really kind of want and kind of could use. So these things, these ways of being, these practices, are things like letting go of their agenda. So when they come together on stage or when a group of people come together that have to work better together, let's say in a boardroom or in a meeting room or in an office or an open non-cubicle space, what would it be like if they, have, they came together, even though they want things to happen, they want the story to form in a certain way, but when they meet the other people that also have their own agenda, they have to let go of that and be changed by what the other people are bringing to the table. It's a useful skill because if you don't do that, then you have a bunch of people with a bunch of a sort of competing agendas, a big agenda fest, as it were, which, by the way, if, I, if you've spent enough time sort of in um, most meetings in corporate America, they can just be that, a big agenda fest, which becomes kind of a big waste of time. And if you talk to a lot of people who spend a lot of time in meetings, they, many of them will tell you that was a big waste of time. I mean, you know, you will hear that sort of meetings in corporate America are kind of a, an epidemic of time wasting because a lot of people just sit there waiting for their own agenda to uh, be said or for them to say their own agenda rather. And then once they've said it, they kind of check out. I've said the thing I need to say. I don't need to listen to anybody else. So anyway, so improvisers have a sort of unique way of been trained and practice letting go of their own agenda listening for what the other person is saying, making other people look good. Um, they know how to accept the offer. And this is a piece of vocabulary from improv. An offer is something that someone else does that you can do something with. They know how to accept an offer and build upon it versus to block it and shut down an idea. And they know how to be fit and well, which is a way of an attitude of approaching uncertainty. So they approach uncertainty from a, an, an attitude of, I have no idea what's going to happen, but it's going to be great, versus... I have no idea what's going to happen, but it's going to suck, which is kind of an attitude of being sick and feeble. So there's a whole handful of these different practices. And the practices that I'm listing, these aren't sort of codified in some sort of book somewhere. You can go to different improv schools or different improv companies, and they'll have different language for this stuff. Um, you know, there's different gurus out there that have different language for this stuff. So these are some that we've gleaned onto and some that we've thought of ourselves. Um, but it's all about behavior, and improvisers practice it. So you can see it. You don't just have to talk about it, and then you can apply it. So there's a whole sort of world of what's called applied improv, and there's a real whole world out there of applied arts where people are taking things that are happening in music and in theater and visual arts and applying them outside of these venues to the world of business or other worlds as well. And so that's kind of a quick hit on how this stuff works. 
That's amazing. And and you've been doing this for 16 years. And so while it might intuitively seem that this would be something that companies would resist, the success of your company and the growth and these kinds of stories must indicate that companies actually are somewhat open to this and, and embracing it as part of their improvement. Yeah. I mean, and the crazy thing is, is that we, when we started doing this, sort of nobody really was. Um, we had got really lucky. There was a dean at the business school here in Portland, Oregon, uh, at PSU, Portland State University. And it's funny, I, we're still good friends, and I call him the hippie dean because he was, you know, he liked to wear Grateful Dead t-shirts when nobody was looking, and he went to fish concerts, but he also liked to bring in things to the MBA program like improv and storytelling. And at the time, 16 years ago, nobody was doing this. And so he was sort of thought of a bit of a radical. It's Portland where we like to be weird and different anyways. But soon after... It was popping up in other places, like at Duke and at Stanford, at the MBA program, suddenly improv was being introduced. And the reason why is because it's a skill. It's a skill, learning, learning how to think on your feet. Uh, I'm so glad that's the name of our company, but that was, we didn't think of it at the time. <laughs> um, you know, TM. Uh, it was, it became sort of a, a, a skill that was being sought after in an MBA program. And and what got lucky for us was we were asked, I was asked to come in and teach at the MBA program here in Portland through Scott, who's the dean here. And it was just a great learning lab for us. Um, but it was also a place where we got to legitimize this work because there were folks that were taking this class from Intel and from uh, Mentor Graphics and some of the very large uh, companies here in town that were bringing this work back, having taken it from the class I was teaching. And I was getting some real direct and immediate feedback, which was, wow, this is helping and this is working. Um, and from that was, was really being able to validate the work. Uh, and then taking it into large companies and be able to repeat the work over time is another way to sort of validate it because it's not just, it doesn't have to be sort of a one-hit wonder. And then, at, yeah, I mean, after 16 years and working with organizations uh, with, you know, that make things that you're probably recording this podcast on um, and keep repeating the work with them, uh, it really validates it validates the work. And the last thing I think I'll say about it is that although you know you do this work with quote unquote companies and organizations, the truth is you do it with human beings. And and the reason why this work works inside of organizations is that companies in the end really want their people. And this, and this is going to sound like a big fat piece of generalization, but I think it's a truth, which is that when you work inside a big company, it's very hard to um, feel like a human sometimes because there seems to be a need or a drive to, to do things repeatedly and perfectly. Um, that is sort of, there's an underlying current of that. And so when you bring in something like improvisation, which has so much humanizing effect uh, with people when you work with them, um, it has a deep it has a deep effect on people. And I've had many people come up to me after doing a session and say, uh, you know, I know this, the company paid for this and it was for, you know, for a direct business objective, but I'm going to use this at home when I'm working with my wife because this is going to help us have a better marriage. And I'm like, wow, that's cool. I'm glad that, I'm glad that has a residual effect in that way. I think that's a hugely important point that really it's not about the company. It's about the collection of individuals that make up the company and the individual human skills that we that we have. And ultimately, something like this is going to affect us in a very human and personal way. And it becomes the interpersonal dynamics that are important. Yeah. And that is the truth here. This is about behavior and it's about human beings. And 
that's why I do the work. Um, and that's why it's such a joy to do the work. And it's why it's never the same twice. Um, I'm a surprise addict. I, I self-proclaimed and put out, you know, I'll set up, I'll meet it and I'll say it anywhere. And um, that's why I do this work. I'm, it's never the same because there's, I do work with human beings and they're never the same. Delightful. Delightful. Do you have some favorite stories of the impact of your work over those 16 years? Oh, gosh. Oh, man, there are so many. I think, you know, one of my favorite stories is where there's been resistance and then that, and you watch kind of how that crumbles. Uh, you know, I, I think about early on, we used to do, the, the most of the work we did in the very beginning was in the ad world, the ad industry. And the reason why is because I started this work with someone in the ad in the ad industry, um, I collaborated. My, my partner in this work was a guy uh, named Robert Poynton, uh, dear, dear friend and the co-founder of On Your Feet. And he uh, lives in Spain. He's a Brit who lives in Spain. He was an ex-ad planner. And so, and I'm an improviser and an illustrator. So it's just sort of a bizarre combination. Portland, Oregon, Madrid, Spain, advertising, improv. And, um, but it's really actually a brilliant combination because, um, it's about co-creation anyways. And so you bring two people together who have different skills, not the same skills. And I think that's why On Your Feet's been so successful is because we have advertising, improvisers. We had uh, an anthropologist as part of our team, filmmaker, small business expert. We bring together a huge variety of people with one thing in common, which is they think improv is fascinating. Um, but anyways, in the early days, we were working with, with advertising agencies because Rob knew a lot of them. And he was able to convince them they should try this thing because it's pretty crazy. So at one point, we were doing a job um, in a park in London. And the reason we were in a park was that the ad agency was like, let's do some of this stuff outside. And we were new. And we were like, yeah, let's try it, which in retrospect is a bad idea because um, it's really distracting to do this work outside, actually. It's hard to keep people focused. But anyways, so we're doing this, this work outside. And there's a game. And, you know, we call some of these things games because they're fun. You play games. It's, it's game-based. And there's a game you play that we were playing once, and we still play. And it's called Bunny Bunny. And it is as stupid and weird as it sounds, where people actually, they basically pretend to be rabbits. And it's an elimination game, and you can get people into it. And the whole point of the game is, before you know it, you're acting uh, sort of weird and silly like a rabbit. But you do it under the guise of a competitive game, so people kind of forget the fact that they're you're doing this stupid thing. Um, and then you talk about the whole idea of judgment and self-judgment, how you can overcome judgment um, by distracting people with something like competition. And it's, it, it, it reveals a lot of things about the way people behave. Anyway, so we, we were playing this game, and we were introducing the, 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 the rules of the game. And when you do, people are like, oh, you're kidding. I'm going to actually play this. Um, and when we did, the, the leader of this team, we were introducing the, the rules. The leader of this team literally said to the group, and by the way, this isn't a public park. The leader of the team said, I'm sorry. He said it with a British accent. He goes, I'm sorry, but I'm just too cool to play this game. I mean, he literally said that, which I thought was just like, that is fascinating. You're self-proclaimed too cool to play. Uh, and, and so he didn't. So he stepped out and he didn't play the game. Now, he's the leader of this team. He's going to, he's going to you know, not play, which I was like, well, how is this going to affect the team? And at this point, we were new to this stuff. And so we were just like, I'm just curious. I'm going to not be like, oh hell this is going to kill everything and what's this going to do to us like i decided i'm not going to take any of this baggage on we're just going to see what happens because who knows so his team you know started to play and they they did and what happened is is that the effect of this work in this game is that you 
do kind of forget everything and just it's impossible to really think about anything else because you sort of get into it because it's sort of just so stupid but you kind of want to win anyways and it's hard to describe on the radio or podcast this really isn't the radio is it uh but just you'll have to trust me you just they got into it and so they were getting into it and they're playing and it gets loud and boisterous and people are getting eliminated and there's rabbits and there there's ears and there's whiskers and all sorts of mayhem and what was happening is is that the guy that was too cool to play was sort of watching it, and you could. And I was watching him. And what then was happening is a group of school kids came by, and they were watching everything else that was going on. But what they were really was watching was the dynamic between the one guy that was sort of the outlier with his arms folded, watching it in judgment, and then the big group that was sort of having a great time. And there was this bizarre sort of watching triangle that was happening between the kids and the guy and the group. And the guy was watching the kids, watching him, then watching the group. And you could suddenly see this moment where he realized that the silliest sort of odd-looking person, the uncoolest guy, was him. Because the kids were sort of like, how come that guy's not playing, basically? And I was watching this whole thing happen. And there's this moment where he kind of went, oh, wait a minute. If I really want to be cool, I need to play. And he dropped his arms down. He sort of he, like you know he sort of looked to see if anyone was watching. He couldn't see me watching, and he sort of slowly moved over and joined the circle, and he played. And then at the end of all of this, he didn't win. He got eliminated. And all this. And at the very end of this, we kind of broke for a break, and he came up to me and he just said, "I'm sorry. Sometimes you just have to play." And that has stuck with me. That was like that was like 12 years ago. And that is just that has stayed with me forever because it's just a truth. Like we get in our own ways so much. And this work has structures in it that just break those filters down. That just get that those filters we put up in every you know, every morning we wake up and we put filters up with things like, I wanna say things that make me look good and I wanna win and I wanna be cool and this work can break those filters down in a way that brings out the real you sometimes and i don't know that story is that story just resonates around that for me that's a great one i can see why that would stick around for 12 years that's a amazing impact so uh, a different but related part of your world is you're also an illustrator tell us a little bit about that piece of your world and what you're up to there sure well uh you know, they may seem unrelated. I don't know. Uh, I suppose maybe from the outside because they're physically different. Uh, improv is a is a temporal art form. It, it appears and disappears, and when you draw, it stays around forever. So that's one difference, I suppose. Um, but they're completely related to me. They're almost like the same thing. Um, I've been drawing, you know, ever since I can remember. And, uh, it's it's been a form of. It's like one of these things, you, improv and, and, and drawing or doodling are both things I have to do to survive. So it's like breathing. Uh, you know, if I don't get on stage once a month, you know, I start to atrophy, literally. And same thing with drawing. It's like, you know, if I didn't have to be holding my microphone a certain distance from my mouth while talking to you, Andy, I, my hand would be doodling during this conversation. So I, I have to do it to listen. And I guess it's so funny. People have been sending me these links lately. Like I've gotten like four of them. Uh, over the last three days, like NBC News verifies doodling helps listeners. Like all the science has been coming out over the last like three months that has verified that doodling is actually good for you when you're in school. So I'm I, I'm vindicated. I was 
uh, I got chastised all the time growing up. And my teachers used to just really rail on me for not listening because I was doodling in, in school. Uh, but I think I think now I've been vindicated. Nice. Uh, but uh, I, so yeah, so I've I've um, I've been an illustrator and a painter, and I've put up big public murals and art pieces um, for a long time. And uh, the the on your feet, the brand of on your feet, the consultancy is sort of you know I've sort of drawn all over it basically. So you know if you look at that brand, it's all branded with my art um, because I can because I'm the because <laughs> I'm the owner of that. And I was like, if I'm not going to keep these things separate, so um, but as part of that. Um, and then I also, you know, I do keep them separate too. There's sort of my own sort of, I, I have exhibitions of my work when I can, but it's really hard because those are like having two full-time lives. So I have to balance them. Um, but uh, I really do find them to be the same thing because they're both about story. When you create improv scenes, you're making a story. You're making a story with the audience. You're making a story with your fellow improviser. And when I draw and when I doodle and when I paint, it's just about story making. I'm, um, bring a story to life. And I'm really interested these days in the idea of incomplete story. Um, it used to be like when I was, I used to make uh, in, in college and when I was in, in grad school working at, on, on my art and art teaching work, um, I would draw big paintings in my garage and the kids from the neighborhood would come by and they would just tell me how what was happening in my story. They would say things like, oh, you know, you see this character that's standing there with a glass. Well, the reason he's so sad is he's just been robbed uh, because what happened right before this is a guy came in and stole all his money and what he's going to do with that glass now he's going to find the robber and pour that water on him like they would just complete the narrative of the image I just made and I'm really interested in that I'm interested in making stories and pictures where the audience finishes or begins the, the story the narrative and so um, these robots these little robots have become sort of a way for me to kind of make a moment of a story and then put them out into the world and let the audience do more things with them, complete or continue a story. So um, I started playing with them about five years ago. I gave out a set of domino robots as a corporate gift from our, for On Your Feet. It was just a little domino robot called the Joybot. And it was I gave them to about 500 of my clients and friends for On Your Feet. And it basically just was a, a, a hand-painted robot on the back of a domino it was called a joy bot and it said uh with a little piece of instruction and the instruction said this is a joy bot um it's programmed to give you joy so just put it uh on your desk or your kitchen and just listen carefully because when you do something really uh good it'll give you an outrageous compliment and tell you how wonderful you are and um so i just gave those to people and what happened was is that most of the people that got them were like oh my god this is amazing let me tell you what my robot told me and they kept writing me back about all the wonderful things the robot was telling them, like how smart they were and all the great things they were saying in their meetings and what a wonderful dresser they were. And this thing started to perpetuate its own life. And then people kept writing me like, how can I get another one? They wanted to buy them. and I wasn't making them for sale or anything. Um, and then they were like, what other kind of robots do you make? And so I started to make different ones. I started to make love bots. And then the children's hospital here in town, I thought, well, what, what can I do for them? And then I... So I donated a whole bunch of Brave Bots for kids that were getting admitted to the hospital there. And I just started making a ton of different types. I was like, this is fun. I'm going to make more robots and see what I can do with them. I started leaving Joy Bots in different cities throughout the world, like London and Portland and Austin and New York, so people could find them and then take pictures of things that bring them joy and then leave 
give me those photographs and then leave the bots for someone else to find and perpetuate that. So the bots have just become this big experiment for me. And I just keep doing fun things with them, like make them big and put them up on murals or give them out to 2,500 people to see what they'll do with them. And it's kind of endless. I have no idea what will happen with them, but I just you know, I want to see what will happen. And lately I've just been inviting people to make their own and steal the idea so I can get as many bots out in the world as, as I can because they just seem to help. They seem to be a helpful piece of art. I love the intersection between the Brave Bot and what you're up to at the Children's Hospital. Can you tell us a little bit about that project and sort of what motivated it? Sure. I had this thought, which was when the Joy Bots first started, people were like, these are great. Um, again, I, I never expected anything to happen with these things. So people were like, these bots are talking to me. And that was, the, that was sort of what unlocked it. The bot was telling me that you know I was doing – I did something wonderful. And I thought – wait a minute, this is just a plastic domino with a drawing on it. But what was happening is that this little object was helping people have conversations with themselves. And it was, you know, a totem or a talisman. I mean, I don't understand how that stuff works. I'm not a mystical person, but uh, this was doing something. And I thought, well, how, where could that help? In what instance could an object help somebody? Um, and, uh, you know, my, both my kids were born up at Emanuel Children's Hospital. It was close to where I lived at the time. And I thought, well, this seems like a bit of a no-brainer. I'm going to go talk to the art therapists at Randall Ch Children's Hospital, which is the new hospital that was built by Emanuel here, and see if this would be useful. So I went and I talked to the art therapists there, and they thought, oh, my goodness, this could be incredibly useful. And I thought, well, let's try it. It's just, again... It's just a huge open experiment. The cool thing about these bots is that I can make lots of them fast. Um, you know, it's not like it's it's one piece of art that I can't make a lot of. And so they said, let's try something. Could you make a giant art piece that could sit in the lobby as well as make individual ones for the kids that are admitted? So I made a piece of 990 bots that's a permanent installation at the at the children's hospital. So when kids come in, to the hospital to be admitted, first they see a piece of art that is, you know, it's like a typical piece of art when you see it sitting on the wall. It's sort of a precious, it's like, it's like in any gallery or in a museum, you're like, oh, that's a special piece of art because it's on the wall and it's in a frame. But then when they get admitted, they get handed their own and it's a Brave Bot. And the Brave Bot instructions say when they get them at the hospital, it says, this is a brave bot, and when you need a little bit of courage, a little boost of courage, listen very carefully, because it will give you some. It will give you a small burst of courage when you especially need it. And so keep it by you, keep it close, um, and carry it with you wherever you go. And the stories that have come back from the nurses and the folks uh, who are the child life specialists, is what they call them, the hospital, have been extraordinary. They have been about kids who take their bots with them for surgery, for x-rays. Um, in particular, there's a girl, Ava, who, had, who couldn't give herself her own insulin injections for her diabetes until she had her brave bot with her, and now it's what allowed her to do so. Um, it has been remarkable and incredibly gratifying for me. And the thing that has happened is that it's, it has snowballed into uh, hospitals, many hospitals around the country asking for the same thing. And the thing that I've realized really quickly is that I'm a bottleneck. I can't make them all, which has been a, a great offer, as we would say in improv, because that 
allows for something else to happen, which is this idea that I shouldn't. I should invite everyone in the world to make them. And so I've created a video on my website which says, steal this idea, where step by step I invite and show um, everybody in the world how to make these bots. So then that kids in the hospitals or anyone who wants to can make them. Um, and now we're starting a program at a, at a hospital in Dallas and another hospital here in Portland where we're making bot factories where um, uh, kids in the hospitals can make two. They make one for themselves and they make one for another kid in the hospital so that, that this whole idea of giving kids bots in hospitals can be perpetuated without me so I don't become the bottleneck. Um, and then I'm making uh, brave bots and I gave some brave bots away at a, at a conference I think that you attended as well, Andy, here in Portland. For, for other people as well, so that they can go and try brave things. The whole idea of not just kids in hospitals, but anybody. And we all have this. What's the one brave thing in your life that you really want to do but haven't done yet? Um, maybe this brave bot can help you have that conversation too. And so I did a big experiment at the World Domination Summit, which is here in Portland, which is a conference that I've been involved with over the last two years, um, to see if we can try this with, with, uh, with grown-ups too that aren't in the hospital, that are just out in the world trying brave things. Um, and we're going to see if uh, we, what comes back on that, which already amazing things have come back. And all you have to do is just hop on Twitter or Instagram and check out hashtag BraveBot to see some of the stories that have been coming off of that too. So these bots are just, again, a big experiment that are just flourishing on their own. Such a cool story. I, I love the way that something that starts off so small, you know, it just became this little, as you said, an experiment that you did, suddenly snowballs beyond, way beyond you, you know, something where all of a sudden I'm the bottleneck. Let's get this out in the world in some bigger place. And then to get the gratification of these stories coming back is, is quite remarkable. Yeah, that is a surprise for me. I have to be honest with you. I did not go in. I mean, I got an ego like everybody else. And I mean, let's face it. I, I mean, I'm a performer and I'm an artist. I mean, you know, in a lot, lot of ways, the, the younger me was just the sort of male cat peeing everywhere and going, look at me, look at me. And I did not, and this has been a lovely journey to get to this place, and I love it. I did not expect to go in there and go, hey, steal this idea and get me out of the picture. But man, I love it. I really, it's crazy. And I'm so surprised how much I love it. It had to happen. It had to happen because if it didn't, none of this, I mean, it just would have stopped and it would have just been about Gary. And, I, you know, it was such a beautiful realization. It happened really about a year ago, like today. I mean, I filmed the steal this. I know exactly where I was. I was on vacation. No, it was about two years ago. I beg your pardon. Two years ago today. I was on vacation uh, two years ago, August. And I was like, I have to do this because if I don't, this is going to stop. Um, and it was such a great on personal unlocking for me. And so many great things have happened by me letting go. And I talk about letting go. I've been preaching letting go in my workshops to my corporate clients. And, you know, it's one thing to talk it. I needed to walk it. And it has been, it's been great. So many amazing things have happened. And now I'm just looking for more, more ways to do it. I just finished a, a workshop, uh, again, at the World Domination Summit, where I gave away um, 30 paintings and drawings. Um, another way of letting go, because I'm like, now I want to do more of this thing, uh, where I've invited people that can have them, have them for free, take my artwork. The only stipulation is that uh, you have to use it to inspire another piece of art that you make that we can exhibit together, uh, you know, next to each other in a year from now in the same space. And I'm like, okay, now what else can I do to let go? Uh, so I'm just playing with it now. 
it's totally fine. What a lovely journey uh, and a really important one. I think that's an inspiring example for all of us, which actually brings me back to A Congruent Life. And the purpose of this show is really about sharing stories of authenticity and congruence, whatever that might mean. So based on your experience, what would you say that living authentically or congruently means to you? Oh, goodness. Well, you know, like I said, I think somewhere in this conversation, I love to I love to be surprised. And I guess I had a, I had a recent experience um, where I, I took some time off of all this work, all this activity. I've been talking about me and all the things that I do. But here's I think here's what it is, which might maybe be a surprise. I think sometimes what it takes to really be authentic is to stop it all, is to put it all on one big pause button, which is what I've done recently. And when you do all of that, to really be authentic, to be congruent, I suppose – I understand what that language means. For me, what it means is sometimes is to stop and to ask some of the big questions, which is why are you doing all this stuff? It's one thing to do all this stuff and to achieve all this stuff and to be satisfied with all this doing, but why? Why do it? And I did that recently. Recently, I, I hit the pause button and I had to face some pretty important and I think tough questions because the answer to that for me was, why am I doing all this stuff was I was doing it all because I didn't feel like I was good enough or I had done enough. I was sort of chasing something. And the realization was that I could just keep doing that or I could decide that I actually had done enough and I am, I am good enough and that I can keep doing these things for kind of different reasons because I really want to and because they can help. So I think in some ways, what it really means to be authentic is to simply be here now and to be incredibly present to what's coming up for you in the moment versus being you know, sort of strategic and planning and having an agenda all the time. Um, sometimes you need to stop to realize it. So I don't know if that helps, but that's kind of what's on my mind these days. It helps immensely. That's, a, I think, a fantastic answer. Thank you. Sure. How can our listeners engage with you, Gary? Find out what you're up to and, and connect with you. Well, let's see. The, sort of the, the, the most alive or the place where that keeps changing or the most up, updated uh, place that, that I keep moving things is uh, on botjoy.com. That's kind of where the, the domino robots and art uh, keep moving and changing. So that would be one, botjoy.com. I am a Twitter person these days, sort of kicking and screaming, but does seem to be the most useful for me. So uh, Gary Hirsch is, is one handle. Botjoy is another as well on Twitter uh, and on Facebook. So those are all the, all the standards. Um, those are all good places. So you can find me there. Great. We'll link to that in the show notes for this episode. Is there a final thought that you'd like to leave our listeners with about authenticity? Without repeating myself, that's going to be the tough one. You can repeat yourself if that's... I will then. Right. I will, and I will do it. Uh, yes, I'll give you my mantra. This is the mantra I've been saying these days, which is, uh, I'll, I'll, you can steal it, which is, uh, you're good enough, you've done enough, so be here now. Well, I have my Brave Bot sitting right here uh, with me on the computer as we're, as we're chatting. And Gary Hirsch, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It's a, it's a really cool story. I love what you're up to. Thanks for being of service to the world in the way that you are. And thanks for the conversation today. Excellent, Andy. Thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it. I hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Gary Hirsch. 
The show notes for this episode are at acongruentlife.net slash 55 or acongruentlife.net slash Hirsch, which is spelled H-I-R-S-C-H. I really appreciate your continued support of the show. It's really gratifying that you're finding these conversations inspiring and supportive. Thanks for the emails and all the feedback on that. It's fantastic. Big thanks to those of you who have left reviews of A Congruent Life recently as well. Ruben H., S.L. Perry, and Angela Lynn. That's a really helpful way to support the show. If you would, please take a quick moment to leave a review for the show at acongruentlife.net slash iTunes or acongruentlife.net slash Stitcher. Thanks so much. Thanks again for listening to and supporting A Congruent Life. I really do appreciate it. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to A Congruent Life. For more, please visit us on the web at acongruentlife.net. Do you have feedback about the show or suggestions for future guests? Please contact us through the website or send an email to feedback at acongruentlife.net. See you next time.